0: I started testosterone and then six months later, I had enough physical changes that people just started treating me differently. And for me, because it was only six months, it was a really abrupt change. I just felt like suddenly I was, it was much easier to get a raise. Um, I didn't really have to ask. I got promoted very quickly. I could see compared to the women around me that I was experiencing a different kind of privilege. I'm Jocelyn
1: K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. Today, we're talking about gender, which might not seem like the most obvious topic when you contemplate the value of going slow. But slowness isn't only about our speed in 3D space. It's also about the speed of thought. Because when we're pressed for time, we're much more likely to rush to judgment or to succumb to our most basic biases. Rather than consciously choosing a course of action that aligns with our highest values, we choose the path of least resistance, the status quo. But what exactly is the status quo when it comes to gender? And particularly when it comes to the way that we navigate gender dynamics at work. And how can we expand our awareness of where we are making snap judgments, or gliding along on privilege, or otherwise unconsciously acting out gender stereotypes? To help me dig into all of these complex questions, my guest is Thomas Page McBee, the first transgender man to box in Madison Square Garden, and the author of the moving new memoir, Amateur a true story about what makes a man. As a man who made his transition around the age of 30, Thomas has a completely unique lens on gender, masculinity, and workplace dynamics, having first moved through the working world in one body and gender, and then another. In this wide-ranging conversation, we talk about the implicit gender biases we face at work, and how we can push back on them, ways to balance power dynamics in meetings to create a safe space for everyone to speak up, and the crazy differences between how Americans and Scandinavians think about masculinity and what it means. All right, that's enough context. Let's dive in. Could you start by giving listeners a quick sketch of the journey that led up to or laid the groundwork for your new book, Amateur, a true story about what makes a man?
0: Yeah, so I started writing about the masculinity crisis in 2011, which is when I began my transition. And as I was writing about it over the first few years, a lot of things were happening to me in my personal life that were sort of part of my enculturation of becoming male for the world, and they were bothering me. So things of sort of both sides of the coin, like on one side, the kind of privilege end of it, like feeling like suddenly I was getting a lot of attention at work that I never got before or like advancing much more quickly, um, or being taken more seriously, which just felt, um, uncomfortable, honestly. And then on the other end, feeling like people were touching me less. I was having like less sort of freedom to express myself, uh, in the ways that were the full spectrum I was used to, you know, expressing myself and dating was really strange. So in 2015, um, it was like after many of those sorts of moments, I was outside of my apartment. On my way to pick up some ice cream, and I got into this bizarre conflict with this guy who who tried to street fight me. And that was sort of the last straw, uh, in part because I felt a very strong desire to fight this guy, which was really strange. It was five, four years after I started transitioning, and I just felt like n- I've reached this point where I either I'm going to become one of these guys, or I need to really examine what makes masculinity you know, toxic. And so that's where the book came from. I asked the question, why do men fight? And then I decided to like learn to fight to understand it. So I trained for a boxing match that led to a fight in Madison Square Garden. I'm sure we'll get to it, but that's the overarching story.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, do you think that you, so you really are, as you kind of just said, moving through these sort of twin narratives in the book, one, which is where you're learning how to fight and you're training for this boxing match. And the other is where you're sort of learning about masculinity and really investigating what it means to be a man for you. Do you think that either, so those two narratives are really unfolding kind of in real time for you. Like, do you think that you could have like done one without the other?
0: It's easier, I think, for it to be a story about a trans guy who trains to fight and then boxes in Madison Square Garden because that is clean and neat and the way in which we like our narratives generally, but especially about trans people, because then it's like succeeding in some way, at being a man in a way that's recognizable culturally. And I literally wanted to do the opposite of that. So for me, it was like, how do I make strange this process of um, what I'm experiencing of like becoming something at 30 and having the sort of, the eyes and the brain, you know, the brain structure to actually understand like what is happening socially to me, like, how can I show people what that feels like? And so I wanted them to be really twinned because I wanted it to feel like kind of uncomfortable and a little bit indicting for everyone, you know, (laughs) like, because that's how I was feeling, like making it visible, making masculinity visible, making gender visible. Um, it's, it's often the province of, uh, women and, um, trans people and queer people. And I, and I really wanted to focus on, you know, this is something that gender is something we all have, you know? And so I think for that reason, I was hoping that the book would really speak to people no matter what their gender was. And I wanted those things to feel connected.
1: Well, and so one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you was that it's, you know, most of us get socialized into gender, you know, from the minute that we're born. And so it happens almost unconsciously. But, you know, you transitioned around the age of 30. And so you were socialized into masculinity when, you know, you were an adult, when you were extremely conscious of what was happening to you. So how do you think that that changed your perception of gender?
0: Yeah, I think I, I feel so lucky. I know it's not like what most people say um, who are trans, especially, but I'm so glad I didn't have a boyhood. I think boyhoods from what I've since reported out and and researched, like they just sound so traumatic. Um, I mean, girlhoods are too, and and all of the hoods are, but, (laughs) uh, but I feel like I was gifted this opportunity to, to experience, you know, um, one kind of socialization, which is female socialization, which, uh, which for me gave me a lot of gifts that like weren't d- disconnected from my gender identity, like the the ability to experience empathy, for example, which is something that we reward in girls, but not in boys. Um, so, so those parts of my socialization were pretty intact by the time I transitioned at 30. And I think that that, the dissonance between what I had been socialized to do first and what I was being asked to, to do second, like really struck me as um, dehumanizing. Uh, and, I mean that, like, literally, I felt like I was having to give up parts of myself in my transition. And so I think that that's the that's the thing that was bothering me. But also I felt very much like I could feel myself responding to um, aspects of my socialization that were being rewarded that were problematic. And I could see that that wasn't conscious, you know. And so it gave me actually a lot of empathy for men in a certain way because I realized that. You know, when you can't see something, you can't change it. And so a lot of the conversations we have about masculinity, I think, start from a place of like assuming that men can see the ways that their socialization has happened. And I think maybe a lot of women can. And I think a lot of people who are outside the binaries can. But I think a lot of times men can't because it happens so young. I mean, infancy. So um, in part, I wanted the book to like kind of in a way, not let men off the hook anymore, but also like sort of expose how challenging it is to actually challenge that kind of gendering.
1: Well, so maybe we can talk about how all of that plays out specifically in the workplace, all of those threads that you were just sort of starting to unpack, because as you said, you're in this sort of unique position of having moved through your work environment and kind of two different gender identities. How did your experience at the office specifically change after you transitioned?
0: Yeah, so, I mean first i feel- I feel like I should say in my twenties, I was definitely in my twenties and probably less uh coherent and smart and everything else you know in your twenties you are, but putting that aside and and sort of assuming that on one level, I probably just got things more sorted in my thirties and was more confident um I think you can still I can still make a comparison and say that like for sure um there were a few areas that I really noticed a big difference once I transitioned. And and it was really sudden because I started testosterone and then six months later I had enough, you know, um, I had experienced enough, I think physical changes that people just started treating me differently. And for me, cause it was only six months, it was a really abrupt change. Um, and so the areas were, uh, literally my voice. Like I could, if I spoke, um, I could silence rooms with my voice. Like my voice became weaponized instead of prior to that, where I felt like, often I would speak and, you know, I would have to like sort of work up my, you know, courage to say things or get used to being spoken over or interrupted. Um, And then after my transition, it just was like, if I spoke, people just listened. Uh, If I spoke to a group of women who were all talking at once, which was sort of my want because I'd been socialized to do that, you know, in a way of like excitedly interrupting people, people, women would just stop talking. Um, And that was upsetting. Uh, Other areas were like, I just felt like my entire journey was very, like, it's a weird word, but, like, lubricated. Like, I just felt like suddenly I was, it was much easier to get a raise. Um, I didn't really have to ask. I got promoted very quickly. Um, And even putting aside that, like, you know, I found my calling and my path, I, I could see compared to the women around me that I was experiencing a different kind of privilege. So those were, like, the primary, you know, areas of my life I saw the difference but my voice was really the one that felt the most visceral and clear um and it was uh it was actually something I had to work the hardest on learning to change How so? Because I think how we communicate and talk to each other it's something that that happens so early on, you know, and it was like not just that it's not just that my voice was given more weight, it's that I had to change entirely how I spoke to women in my life and also how I spoke to men. Um, so I think it was a much more conscious, constant decision to be, first of all, I I kept track of like how I, who I was speaking over and, and why and when, um, who I was answering more quickly, you know, and it was often men over women, or I was speaking over women more than men. Um, so I had to first sort of get a sense of what was going on and then that was upsetting. And then like, so once I kind of worked through that of like understanding that, then I tried to change it. Um, and I had to do a lot more listening, a lot less talking And it it was hard in part because I'd learned to advocate for myself from my female socialization. So I think it was challenging to have to like understand that that was no longer the best, you know, the best way to be a feminist at work. Like
1: you had to dial it back.
0: kind of. Yeah, I had to very much dial it back. And in fact, um, start modeling like ally behavior. Uh, So like asking for feedback instead of, you know, um, speaking, you know, or trying really hard to make sure that I was listening way more than I was talking because my voice just had a different power. Um, and that was a really, it was challenging, not because it it was challenging to, you know, philosophically, but it was just challenging to remember that all the time. It's still something I'm working on.
1: Right. Because it was already ingrained that you were coming from this other perspective where you constantly had to kind of stick up for yourself or advocate for
0: yourself and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes in some environments, because I'm trans, I am still, you know, sort of seen a certain way. So I have to also be good at assessing, you know, in what moments am I being treated, you know, as just a man and in what ways am I being sometimes am I being treated as a trans man. And in those environments, which are usually more cis male heavy, uh, I have to still be more of an advocate for myself. So it can be hard to figure out where I stand, (laughs) but I think it's worth the work and the effort um, to make sure I'm making room for other people.
1: Well, I think there's a lot of people who are listening who are probably, you know, interested in in your experience navigating these gender dynamics in the workplace. You talked about, you know, you're really sort of experimenting and trying to become more conscious of your behavior. Were there specific things that you kind of tested out or techniques that you used that you felt like really worked or things that you tried that you thought like might bring more sort of equity to the room that like didn't work at all?
0: yeah. I think over time I, I got, I got a good system down, uh, especially when I worked in a, in an office environment. Um, I was, I had a team that I was managing and, and they were all, um, almost all women and they were younger than me. So it took me a while to sort of sort out the power dynamics of that and figure out how do I make space for everyone while also of course, like maintaining some semblance of authority and, you know, figuring out the right way to, to hold, you know, what was a kind of complex dynamic and. Um, where where I got to eventually was, uh, for example, if I had a meeting uh, with everyone in the room, the whole team, I just had everyone else speak before I spoke. So just I think to have your voice be heard at the very beginning, I think I was noticing many people on my team wouldn't talk very much. And that was a way that like I was sort of told by a woman that I knew to like to think about um, handling that differently. So so I did a lot of asking women around me, whether it was my coworkers or, um, the people I worked with when appropriate, what, what they suggested to do to sort of handle this problem. And I think crowdsourcing, you know, uh, information and advice was really useful. Um, I tried to get a lot of honest feedback about my own behavior. Like I actually found that asking a lot, uh, especially again, women, because that's where I was trying to change my behavior. Um, people were really great at giving feedback that was really honest, but like not, um, unkind. Um, and once everyone knew I was working on this, it was pretty easy to just sort of check in pretty regularly, uh, with, with the people in my life to see how it was going. And, um, so oftentimes it was just small adjustments. Like, you know, you are doing this thing or or you're still doing that thing you said you didn't want to do or whatever, you know? Um, and so that was, you know, it was sort of like, I guess leveraging the fact that I have personal relationships and that's, that is a you know, a thing I'm lucky about that I can form you know close relationships with people uh, and and ask those questions, um, which I know not all men have at work with the women in their lives for reasons that have to do with our socialization. So, right, one uh, well,
1: asking for help.
0: Yes, and asking for help, and that's one major, um, you know, one major way when we talk about toxic masculinity. What. It's a set of traits that are not connected specifically to being male biologically, you know, but the how we condition men in a power structure and uh, not asking for help is one way that, you know, they're kept in power, but at the expense of their humanity. And this is hopefully a good example of how you can get out of that box. And for me, it was, yeah, asking for help a lot and admitting when I don't know things um, or that I don't have an answer or that I'm, you know, struggling with something and trying to get better. All of that, I think, really at work was like a really useful way to try to, you know, I sort of brought a lot of people on board with my attempts to change something that I didn't like about myself. And it, it worked. It was sort of like a group process.
1: <laughs> so you said that you would have people kind of speak first in meetings. Did you just have like a sort of question that you would use to bring everyone out or how did that work exactly?
0: Yeah, I didn't tell my team I was doing that. Just, I wonder what they think at this point, but, uh, cause I've mentioned it now publicly a few times, but I, I, because I, I didn't want to call attention to it or for it to feel like a device. Um, but I s- realized that if I could present, you know, if I f- focused a meeting, week, our weekly meeting on like a problem uh, or a you know something strategically we were all thinking about, it was easier to sort of start with an open question. Like, have you all noticed this? What do you think? Or, um, or I would even tell them ahead of time, here's the thing we're going to be talking about this week. Like, come prepared to, you know, offer your thoughts or whatever. And then that way everybody could talk. It didn't feel contrived. Um, and it made it a better meeting. I mean, that was the, the, the point of all this isn't that it's just about like moral high ground. It's like, obviously everyone's voices and thoughts, um, make, make, you know, workplaces better and, um, are more, uh, make us more effective. And so that's what happened. I think it just opened up, um, our ability to like solve problems better.
1: When you are writing a book, you interviewed um, Caroline Simmerd at Stanford, who's done some pretty interesting research around unconscious biases in the workplace. What did you learn from her?
0: Yeah. So one thing, I mean, I know that, you know, uh, implicit or unconscious bias has been controversial in some ways. Like there's some argument about how do you measure it, et cetera. Um, but putting that aside, I think that you know her work has been super interesting, uh, especially because she's—it's it, some way to try to measure what we all know is true, which is that there is sexism at work. Um, and she did a, a, a study around um, performance reviews, which was sort of an interesting way in, and it was basically about how we give feedback differently to men and women, uh, with men. We're much more likely to use very concrete feedback, uh, like which obviously leads to therefore actionable change. And with women, uh, the feedback that she and her team measured was much more vague, like vague praise, um, which therefore means you know you don't know what you need to improve and how do you then become better at your job and thus like get promoted, earn more money, etc. And I really appreciated that because I thought it was a really smart way to. Um, to sort of at least start a conversation about the things that we do unconsciously without understanding, you know, that we're being sexist or racist or any of the things that we know we are collectively. But I think it can feel very challenging Um, for most people because we often divide, uh, you know, we often divide ourselves into good and bad, (laughs) you know, like good and bad men, uh, good and bad white people. Like there's this notion that like the good people are somehow, not internalizing any of this information. (laughs) The bad people are the ones who just, you know, overtly behave badly. And of course there are people who are overtly racist, biased, you know, sexist, et cetera. But um, I think the real danger are the people, not the real danger, one of the real dangers are those of us who are like internalizing all this and we have no idea and we think that we've, we're above it, you know? I mean, that's really dangerous. So I think that's my takeaway around implicit bias is, you know, this is a way to talk about something we all know is true, which is that we all live in this culture, and of course it affects us, and, like, we, we need a language around that.
1: It's time for a short pause, but keep those earbuds in, because after the break, Thomas debunks the myth that testosterone is what makes men aggressive, and talks about the value of confronting your shadow self. This episode is brought to you by Twist. Twist. Like so many technologies, group chat was fun at first, and then, little by little, it turned into a dreaded workplace distraction. But we can't get rid of it because remote collaboration is real. We do need a way to communicate quickly and seamlessly with our teammates. So what gives? Well, the good news is there's a better way, and it's called Twist, a real-time group collaboration app without The real-time anxiety. Unlike Slack, Twist is asynchronous, thread-based, and mindfully designed to keep conversations organized and in context forever. And because it's not an endless conveyor belt of messages, you're not pressured to respond immediately. And your work can flow naturally. Over 60,000 remote-friendly teams already use Twist to prioritize deep work. If you're ready to communicate in a calm, organized, and effective manner, it's time to try Twist. Visit twist.com slash hurry slowly to automatically receive $100 in Twist unlimited credits when you sign up for a new account. That's twist.com slash hurry slowly for $100 in credit. This episode is also brought to you by Hover. Got a killer idea? I think we all know what step number one is these days. Go see if the domain name is available, and assuming it is, get that URL on lock. Finding the domain name that matches your passion is basically the first step in building your brand. Because if your brand doesn't have a website, let's be honest, it's not really a thing. Fortunately, Hover makes being the master of your domain easy. They have a mind boggling amount of extensions to choose from, including all the classics, plus a bunch of new favorites like dot design for graphic types, or dot how for the eternal questioner, or dot love for the open hearted entrepreneur. But one of the best features of Hover is that everything is included, so they're not always trying to upsell you. Who is Privacy is included with every domain for free, and nifty integrations like Hover Connect make it super easy to connect your domain to a variety of popular website builders with just a few clicks. So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. we talked about you being perceived differently in the workplace and you being treated differently in the workplace, but you also found that, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, you were behaving differently Mm -hmm. um, and you started to treat women differently, both in the workplace and then also, um, you know, in life and in particular in this, you know, kind of other thread of um, training for this boxing match that you were, pursuing? What were the kind of changes that you observed in yourself in terms of like stuff that you were internalizing and then acting out that you weren't entirely comfortable with?
0: I wasn't comfortable with realizing I was sexist, which I apparently was. And that was a really, I mean, I was, I was raised by a, my mom who was a single mom and a feminist and had been like a physicist before women were generally and had broken all these glass ceilings. And and again, I think she really trained me to stick up for myself, defend myself, et cetera. So, um, so some of the behaviors I had that were then problematic were coming from how I was socialized, but then there were problems that were like about fragile masculinity. Uh, in the book, the example I use is, um, I was paired with a a female boxer, uh, fighter when we were first training and, um, and there was sort of a rule in the boxing gym that you, you could, sort of defense with a woman, but you couldn't like hit a woman, which makes sense. Um, but in this case, she was much more, um, experienced than I was and, you know, had been training much longer. I was very new and she was 100% consenting and wanted to spar me. Um, and I felt so uncomfortable with it, you know, and not just, you know, when I was honest with myself, it wasn't just because I didn't want to hit a woman, which I didn't, but I also felt like, you know, on a deeper level, it was embarrassing. You know, it was like, it was humiliating. Like, why do, you know, why am I the one guy in the gym who's fighting this woman? And it really, you know, trans men have, I think we have more to prove. And I think our masculinities are more, you know, at stake in certain ways. But I also feel like, I didn't want to live a life where that was how I was defining myself as a person who has to like, you know, protect my masculinity. And I really felt like that's what I was doing. So, uh, in the book, I really interrogate that. And it, it leads to bigger questions of like, where else am I behaving in these ways that are pretty problematic? Where else do I feel like I shouldn't, um, be upstaged by a woman or, you know, where am I bringing that kind of energy that I'm only recently getting in culture to even believe, uh, to my life. And, and that's what led me to think more about interrupting and, um, and how I behaved at work. And in the end, I did spar that woman. <laughs> How'd it go? She, she kicked my ass. <laughs> she was really good.
1: <laughs> well, and that kind of brings up this um, this idea that I thought was so interesting in the book. So you're talking about, right, this idea of not wanting to be upstaged by a woman because that's somehow, uh, you know, reflecting in a negative way on your masculinity, And um, you talk about this absolutely fascinating study in the book, which looks at different cultural definitions of manhood. And it compared the Danish idea of masculinity and the American idea of masculinity. And what they found was that the Danes thought that being a man meant not being a boy. And Americans thought that being a man meant not being a woman. And this like Difference kind of blew my mind. Like, there's so much to unpack there.
0: Yeah. It's, I mean, the main thing is that our American notions of masculinity are based in sexism. I mean, if you are, if your entire identity, which is for most people, gender identity is a big part of who they are, if your entire identity has been socialized around, you know, making sure people realize you're not something else, uh, how, I mean, how does that not explain the power structure that we all are participating in? And also, how does that not explain? Um, the ways in which men seem so divorced, I mean, in a toxic way, not all men, but like many men seem so divorced from their capacities for things that we might consider, again, not for any real reason, but that we would consider, quote, feminine, you know, like like empathy, like the ability to have intimacy. I mean, th- of course, because if you have to prove your masculinity by being not like the women around you, then you're losing a whole part of yourself. I, I find that profoundly sad. Um, and yeah, I think that's a really interesting... Study. The other thing about that study that's interesting is that women and Danish women um, said that they, um, the way they defined being a woman was not being a girl. So it's like in that culture, uh, you know, people in uh, both men and women defined gender basically the same way. Uh, and you're looking at a more egalitarian culture and society. So it's hard not to put two and two together there.
1: But what was so interesting about that, and you remark on this in the book, is that the woman who did that study... Right. Isn't she married to a Danish man and she's kind of conflicted about his masculinity? Yeah. <laughs> she she's was, American, right? She's
0: American and she's, a, um, her name's Sarah DiMuccio. She is a uh, student at NYU, a, a PhD student, and she okay. had this study published. Um, uh, but she was great. I mean, what I appreciated about her perspective was that she had she had um, studied abroad in uh, in Denmark and then gone back and done this work. So she had like had a lot of experience there culturally. But she was from, I believe, Texas. So her sort of how she grew up around what what men were like and then what she was experiencing there was radically different, um, which was why she got so interested. But I think you know, the way she explained herself was to sort of say, like, you know, she fell in love with this guy, he's great, and he really doesn't have a lot of the markers of toxic masculinity that she saw in American men, which she appreciates, but sometimes she would be surprised by her own reactions to his um, to his behavior because he would do a lot of things that were very transgressive, like cry openly, um, or like care a lot about his fashion, you know, whatever, and, and, and to her, it took a while to realize that she was, for her to realize that she was part of the policing of masculinity, that she, she actually wanted to help dismantle. (laughs) That's super
1: interesting. Yeah. (laughs) So we were talking about this crisis, your crisis, this crisis of masculinity, this larger cultural issue. And you write about in the book how your own sort of masculinity crisis kind of finally took this turn for the better when you, quote, practiced doing what men weren't supposed to do. What was that?
0: Mm. Well, so a lot of what we've been talking about, asking for help. Um, talking about masculinity, like I I think one of the most insidious aspects of all of this is that I got the message very early on that I shouldn't draw attention to, you know, I shouldn't draw attention to anything that was puzzling or confusing to me about masculinity because that would then, um, you know, put my masculinity in question. Uh, real men don't. Real men don't question masculinity and masculinity is a moving target. So it's kind of a complicated thing because you're supposed to always be trying to be a you know, better version of being a man. But then you're not supposed to ever talk about how that's strange. Um, so calling, you know, bringing up my questions, being willing to, en- to engage them, being vulnerable, um, asking for help. Like most of the things that, that I think are the opposite of being toxic <laughs> required, um, uh, sort of building that muscle back back up again, being empathetic. Um, but that's what made me feel more like myself in this body, you know, and that was sort of what my, I, I understood for me, that's what I needed to do. But I also felt like the more I talked to men around me, it seemed like a lot of men had felt really disconnected from their bodies for a really long time.
1: Did you find, because it's interesting, a lot of the, particularly the researchers you cite in the book are primarily women, mm. I would say, who mm-hmm. are doing this research about masculinity. Did you find either in terms of this sort of researchers that you were interviewing or, you know, the men that you were kind of encountering in your life or, you know, at the boxing gym, was there anyone who was really like kind of on the same page with you in terms of trying to interrogate masculinity in the same way?
0: Yeah, I think especially in the sociology community, there are a lot of men um, like Tyson Smith, who's a guy who studied wrestlers um, and who I spoke to for this book and for many other um, for many other articles, who are really like trying to like find a way to, to hold all of this and, and talk about it and find a language for it. So there there are definitely there are definitely men who are doing that. I do think that women on the whole seemed more like able to hold the nuance of, um, of all of this stuff, because I think just walking through life, like that's what you do. And I knew a lot lot of specifically queer women were ones who I was, I felt like were able to see things like from a bird's eye view, um, which makes a lot of sense because I think when your gender and your sexuality are kind of outside the norm, it's easier to kind of, to, to name everything that's going on. Um, but yeah, there were definitely men. And I think also the more I talked to men, everyone, every guy I talked to eventually, told me a personal story. And I really debated about putting them in the book, actually, because it was like a lot of... um, Every person of all genders I spoke to for this book ended up telling me some personal story. And sometimes I included them and sometimes I didn't. But um, when they were really personal, I didn't. But I thought a lot about them. And, And pretty much every man I spoke to Once we talked enough about the academic side of things, they sort of revealed why they had gotten into this in the first place. And it was really profound, actually, to see, you know, again, men who were asking these questions and and to think about, especially the older guys, how how much more revolutionary and challenging that probably was, you know, 20 years ago uh, than it is even now. I know how hard it is for me. I mean, it's like... To do this, like, it really does bring out, you know, the worst part of people, you know, especially guys, because that's what they're trained to do. It's like anybody who's questioning, questioning the structure, like, needs to be immediately taken down. Um, so <laughs> it's pretty dark. And, and it was nice to see that there, were, um, that there were so many men who were willing to do that work anyway.
1: Are there any particular stories of the kind that you just mentioned that you could share that you were particularly struck by?
0: I can, well, I can share it without like kind of assigning it to anyone in particular, but there was one man I talked to who, um, who it, it was sort of a small thing, but he had long hair and he was older and he made this point that like a big part of why he got involved with, with all of this growing up, with all of this field of study around, around masculinity was because growing up, he'd, um, been picked on kind of relentlessly about his hair and eventually he just decided I'm gonna always have long hair because screw these people (laughs) like I can have long hair if I want but it was a different time and you know you know he was picked on because only girls were allowed to have long hair and it was such a I mean he was bullied kind of relentlessly and the way he was talking about it I could tell it was clearly like a really big developmental thing for him and and it was actually a big deal that he you know in the end he was like I'm not gonna give this up and in fact I'm actually like wondering why all these boys are like why is this the thing they're sticking to you know and this was many you know, decades later he still was so troubled by that memory um, and it was like a defining part of his childhood but it also I think you know I guess it made me think a lot about when you call attention to those sort of things young, you know, like, and he too had a choice. He could just sort of become the bully, uh, and become like a person who's like, you know, well, I guess that's how it is. Or he could be like, why is this happening? And he spent his whole life asking that question, you know? So, um, and most men had, had a story like that, like some, you know, whether or not it was super traumatic, like some thing in their childhood that drew attention to, you know, to, to their masculinity in a way that they felt like was uncomfortable and didn't really make any sense, and then they just chewed on it and eventually decided to, like, study it, you know?
1: You're making me think of, I remember years ago, sitting around the dinner table, and it was a dinner party, it was maybe half women, half men, and for some reason some guy was telling some story about, you know, getting beat up when he was in elementary school or whatnot, and then all of the men started going around the table and telling some story about, you know, getting beat up or getting into a fight or, you know, having this kind of moment of crisis when they were like, what am I going to do? Am I going to face this fight? Am I not going to face this fight? And it was so striking to me that, you know, as women, we did not have those stories. That Mm -hmm. was not, you know, certainly women get bullied or have conflicts in different ways, but this sort of physical fighting wasn't like part of my kind of standard experience as a child. Yeah. Um, And, it kind of just called out that really starkly, that difference in socialization.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, for me, the central question of the book was like, does being, you know, taking testosterone, does that make you violent? Is that, you know, because people always sort of, at, at this point in the conversation, it's sort of like, well, okay, but that's how, that's how boys are. That's how men are. Look at this example of how, it, which is not what you were saying, but I'm just saying that's that's what people often think. Um, and one of the most interesting things I learned from the neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky at Stanford was that um, testosterone doesn't make men aggressive, actually. It's one of the bigger myths about testosterone. It makes men status-seeking. Um, and so status is whatever we reward as a culture. And they've run economic games where uh, the way you win the game is by cooperating. And the ho- men with the highest testosterone were the most cooperative. But when men were given a placebo and told it was testosterone in those same game situations they acted more aggressively even though they hadn't been actually given testosterone so i feel like this idea that um that male fighting is somehow innate in some aspect of our you know biology like that that's not actually true or at the very least it's not um it's not that we're like sort of driven towards violence monstrously and everyone needs to get out of the way. Uh, you know, it's that we're, we're creating cultures where we keep rewarding aggression and that's why men are aggressive. Um, and it's really sad.
1: (laughs) Well, and so since this book is after all very much about boxing, very much about fighting, I'm curious what you learned and kind of coming on the heels of, of those remarks. What did you learn that was really positive for you about fighting? And then what did you learn about when it's better not to fight?
0: Mm. I have always liked boxing. I just, I think it's a beautiful sport. Um, in part maybe because it's brutal, but only in the sense that it's such a. you can see if you, if you watch boxing, like you can really see someone's whole, um, whole personality and how they, they fight. And so that sense is sort of like a dance. Um, so I was interested in it before I did it. And, I was interested for that specific reason, and I think I really liked training for that reason because even though it's an individual sport, when you're sparring, which isn't really about hurting the other person, it's just about you know learning and getting better. Um, when I was sparring, I, I really felt like it created a lot of intimacy with me and the men around me, and around that specific question of like, what are our vulnerabilities, and how do we, um, I guess, turn them into strengths. It's not even like how do we protect them because you can't, you know. It's more like how do I take this thing that is potentially a weakness and turn it into a strength. And that was my experience of learning how to fight. And I felt like it was really um, open and exposed and vulnerable. And, you know, I, I was sort of surprised about how often I was talking to men about, about how they and I were feeling you know, spiritually, emotionally, you know, physically. Um, that was my favorite part. I think, and I think learning that uh, I could decouple some of the things I associated with masculinity in a negative way from gender, you know? Like, I think everybody can benefit from learning how to, when it's appropriate, use aggression, you know? And when it's consensual and, like, and or you're in a physically dangerous situation, knowing that you have the skills to to, to protect yourself, I think those are all good things. Those are things I, I wanted to know, and um, I was glad I learned. I think that the things that were downsides were almost the flip of that, which is that I, I kind of felt like it was sad to me that it took the cover of violence to have those sorts of relationships with, with men in my life. Um, and I don't think that it's necessary, but I do think that level of vulnerability really, uh, was unusual. And, And I'm still close to all the guys I, I, I trained with and my coach and, um, and now that we've sort of had this experience together, you know, I, they all came to my book reading, uh, my book launch, and um, it was really great. But I don't know if we would have had any way to have that kind of intimacy without that experience first. So I think that's a, that's a that's a thing that's a downside about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think mostly I have positive things to say. I was very surprised.
1: <laughs> you were just talking about the intimacy of the boxing ring, which is funny because it's not sort of your natural instinct to mm. think that that's sort of what would be created there. But it seemed like that really opened up a space for, you know, talking about things that were a little bit deeper that people might otherwise be uncomfortable talking about. But I also got the impression that outside of the ring, when you were able to kind of break through that wall and broach those subjects, that it seemed like other men would be forthcoming. Is that true? Like in terms of, you know, kind of being a little bit more vulnerable or talking about things that you don't usually talk about?
0: I do think that... Learning to fight had a cachet. Uh, I think it made other men respect me. And I do think, again, that cover of Violence opens up all kinds of things. I think it's sad that that's true, but I also think I live in this world. And I noticed that um, if I was a guy willing to do something that most men weren't, and you know that sort of proved my, my bravery or whatever, that it, it also made more space. If I was doing something that was unusual for a man to do, it made more space, I think, for men to be responsive to that and, and enlarged the possibility of what masculinity could look like, which, which is sort of my larger mission, you know? So yeah, I think, I think being able to, to have that as something I, I'd done or that I was doing really created different dynamics with everyone in my life, you know? And, and that was something I tried to leverage in a positive way.
1: Yeah, well, and you mentioned a couple of questions that one of the researchers that you talked to, Niobe Mm Way, kind of threw back at you. Because I think you asked her, like, how to be a good man. And she was kind of like, I have some ideas for some maybe better questions that you could ask yourself, Mm -hmm. which were, what are you doing in your life that's keeping the status quo Mm -hmm. alive? And how are you keeping silent in terms of the things that you see? Mm -hmm. And, I thought those were great questions, particularly in terms of what you're talking about when you're sitting in a place of privilege, it's very easy to feel like you don't, you know, you don't need to bring these things up or you don't need to confront these things. But when you kind of open up those questions, you think about what am I doing in my life that's keeping the status quo Mm -hmm. in place, then, you know, there's something for everyone to do in that context.
0: I love, I I love talking to her and, um, and I talked to her for a few different stories and, and, and the book, um, But I appreciate that idea of the status quo so much because that's the way I've reframed it ever since over and over again to myself, you know? Like, I think... That's it's literally what's happening. I mean, and so if you think that the world is operating in the best possible way uh, in this moment, and you are comfortable with that opinion, like then you're maintaining the status quo is you know objectively racist, sexist, transphobic, etc. And you know you are just unapologetically living that way. But if you are uncomfortable uh, with with anything about the way the world works, then you need to be able to hear it if if that's pointed out to you, or um, it's drawn to your attention, or you know even in yourself, you maybe do some some thinking deeply about how you're helping to do that. Like, I I think that that is a great way of reframing it instead of it sort of being this kind of like the problem with good men versus bad men as a way of thinking, which she points out is just that, that it, it kind of, if there's a, if there's a good man, there has to be a bad man. And if there's a bad man, there has to be a good man, you know, and there's, it becomes yet another like binary power thing, you know, versus like we're all existing. Most of us are existing on some sort of spectrum. Um, and, you know, if we're really serious about making changes, we should identify where we are on the spectrum uh, of not good or bad, but of how much have we internalize this stuff that we've been taught. How much do we benefit from it? And uh, and if we want to change it, we have to do more work if we've internalized it more, and if we benefit from it more. It's pretty objectively clear. You know, it's just really hard to do.
1: Well, so we've been talking a lot about questions. It's kind of been a theme throughout this interview, and it's a theme throughout the book as well. Questions sort of form the the backbeat of the memoir. Each chapter title is a question. So am I a real man? Am I a sexist? Why won't anyone touch me? And so forth. What do you think is the importance of questions of asking as a way of being?
0: Mm. Well, the questions came, you know, naturally because I I was I was having them, and I was a big fan of this quote in um, the books End Mind Beginner's Mind, which is uh, in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities, in the expert's mind there are few. Um, I felt like being a beginner meant that all these things were, were coming up for me, and and sort of in our culture, questions are seen as, um, especially I think the older we get, and especially for men, I think I think questions are you're not supposed to have questions, you're supposed to just have answers. Uh, and I felt like the answers I was getting weren't weren't good enough. Um, they didn't seem right, and they seemed problematic. And so. I kind of wanted to write against that, you know? And also even, honestly, like the business of selling a book, you know, you're supposed to have a big grand theory. Um, And like, what is your theory going to be? How are you going to write a book about masculinity without having like a single idea that we can point to as an answer? Like, you know, and and what question are you going to answer? And I really worked with my editor on that and, and sort of making sure that I was not having one big singular answer because that would be silly and it would be reductive and it wouldn't be true. And so I think for me, the questions were about, Um, all of that, and also modeling that any person can do this. Like, it's not, I'm not special. Being trans actually, it might give me a certain lens, but it doesn't make me special. It just means that I had to ask these questions. But once I started doing it, it was so liberating, and I I hope it feels liberating as a concept and that other people will be willing to do that, whatever their genders.
1: Yeah, well, it's funny just thinking about this idea of questions being... I don't know, look down upon or make you less respected. But it's also like so boring, like how boring to go through life and just think you have all the answers and just listen to yourself saying the same answers. Yeah, you
0: obviously don't. It's not a growth oriented (laughs) mindset. (laughs) Like You obviously don't have all the answers. But I I think for me, it was, it's funny because, you know, being trans, like there was literal, I literally had a visceral experience experience of dissonance, like uh, body dysmorphia, where I felt like I wasn't, the person I saw in the mirror. That's a real thing that happened. At the same time, like once I transitioned, I felt like, um, very surprised to find that I was having a different kind of dissonance. It wasn't body dysmorphia, but it was like the sense that I got, I get to live in this body. I'm happy in the body I have, but like the way I'm interacting with the world feels so dissonant. And I didn't go through all this so that I could continue to feel a dissonant yeah. sense of my identity. I mean, what, what would be the point, you know? And I, over time, I've come to believe that we all have those moments of feeling dissonant in our bodies, of, of passing, of feeling like we're doing something that sometimes we have to, you know, but a lot of times we're doing it because it's expected or easier or less uncomfortable. And I think the world would be a better place with our collective, you know, to bring it back to the earlier things we were talking about, with our collective and diverse, you know, ability to think through things if we could all... um you know, have a responsibility to each other of like bringing up something when it's not feeling right or comfortable and actually sitting with it and trying to figure it out a little bit or, um, or flag it to other people. (laughs) You know, I think that's actually an act of, um, of, uh, radical, you know, kindness and love for humanity. And that's what, that's what I was intending to do with the book.
1: There's a theme of shadows throughout the book, this kind of idea of these rejected bits of identity that we drag around behind us. And you talk about, Carl Jung's theory about the shadow and how facing one's shadow, facing one's demons is the central task of being human. How do you think what we reject informs who we are?
0: Well, I found Carl Jung um, in this theory, you know, prior to my transition, it was when I was like trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that I was abused gr- growing up and um, and just sort of how to reconcile that with my deep desire to love People, but also how do I deal with this hurt? Um, and I really like his theory because he was answering an even bigger question, which was like, you know, at the time of you know post World War II, he was thinking about the Nazis and and more more importantly the Nazi collaborators and and how could people have gone along with this? You know, is evil real? Like that was his big question. Um, and so what he came up with 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 this shadow idea was that you know we all have the capacity to do terrible things. That it's not there's no you know. Generally, people, anything one of us does, any of us could do for better or worse. And that, you know, our job collectively is to, instead of sort of splinter off into like the good and the bad, to start like looking at um, the behavior of people around us and especially the, the behavior we judge really aggressively and, and look back at ourselves in those moments and say, well, what about this feels familiar or um, where do I relate to that? Uh, and so it, it creates empathy but not in a way that doesn't hold people accountable. And it also, um, it also forces you to look at yourself in a way I think that's really important. And then his big point was the reason you should do all of that besides the fact that it helps you prevent from, you know, repeating trauma and repeating negative things, um, is that it, it leads to integration and it makes you you feel more part of the world, you know? I mean, I think it's a lot of energy to sit around judging everyone else's negative behavior and, you know, and making your world smaller and smaller by like who's appropriate, and who's not appropriate. And again, everyone should be accountable for their behavior, but I think his lens was more like what if we're all, you know, what if we all could do any of these things? And the only thing keeping us from behaving in a way that's really troubling uh is that those those of us who have a, sm- a very strong moral core and that includes looking at this negative behavior and and seeing it in ourselves and then saying to ourselves, you know, what about, what would make me act that way and why? And what do I need to heal in myself to to not do that? If that's the only real difference between, you know, me and someone who does something really evil, like, I think that 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 feels true. I mean, if you've had a cycle of violence in your family, you know, like, that's true. It's like almost always people who abuse people were abused themselves. Like, so facing and healing wounds does feel like the the first step um, towards creating a better world for everyone.
1: Yeah. Well, and there's that macro level. You're talking about it. And I remember, I think I originally came to this idea of Jung's through like a quote, which looks at a really micro level, which is something to the effect of, you know, you can learn everything about yourself by examining what irritates you Mm -hmm. about others, um, which has always stuck with me. And I think about it constantly when, and it's not just, you know, huge things, but little, you know, when little things really bother me about other people and really examining what that says about me. And it almost always, you know, brings me back to something really interesting and revelatory about myself that I need to work on, you know, that has nothing to do with whatever that other person was doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I thought a lot about this thing James Gilligan, uh, the prison psychologist, said that I put in the book about how, um, in his mind, all violent crime um, begins with shame. And I think shame is the most toxic not guilt, but shame is the most toxic aspect of our culture, of, of all cultures. It's like a useless thing where we tell somebody that they're bad for being who they are. And and when you look at crime and you especially you look at crimes like abuse, like almost always it's like about passing that shame on, you know? So if we're carrying around shame of any kind, which most of us are for some reason or another, whether we're encultured into it or learn about it in our families or whatever, um, you're in danger of, of, of shaming other people. And if you shame other people, like that's going to be then a thing that gets passed on to other people. So I think it's, it's easy to look around and spend a lot of time divorcing yourself from the people around you and the behavior they have. And, and I get it and I get the impulse, but I think the, the truth is when we do that, we say that there are some people that are worthy of love or respect or whatever. And some people who, who aren't. And I, and I think my job as a person is to like figure out how to, fit into the, you know, family of humanity for all of its, you know, best and worst parts and then how do we then change bad behavior without making the people who have that behavior bad?
1: Speed is always about escape. Whether it's just choosing to speed away from being present in the moment by looking at your smartphone or literally speeding away so that you can leave something in your rearview mirror an interaction that made you uncomfortable, a decision you can't deal with, or a shadow you'd rather not confront. To slow down requires that we stop running, that we turn around and face those shadows, and that we ask better questions so that we can integrate them, as Thomas suggests. Not surprisingly, this episode left me with more questions than answers. So I will end it by posing those excellent questions that the researcher Niobe Way asked back to you. What are you doing in your life that's keeping the status quo alive? And how are you keeping silent in terms of the things that you see? If you're interested in fully committing to slowing down and working in a more intentional way, I'm about to launch a brand new online course called Reset. Registration opens in just a few weeks on December 18th. Reset is all about how to take back control of technology, how to adopt a more heart-centered approach to productivity, and how to align your workflow with your creative goals. It takes the themes that I explore on this podcast and translates them into a clear, actionable program that will completely transform the way you work. To get on the list for more information, visit Reset-Course.com. Once again, that's Reset-Course.com. Be sure to tune in the week after next when I'll be talking about the growing burnout epidemic how to go about defining what's enough when it comes to your workload, and why I think it's time to recalibrate the way we work before it's too late. The good news is, it's easier than you think. All right, now it's time for your final moment of zen. What gives you anxiety?
0: I think what gives me anxiety more than anything else is the idea of not being understood. Um, especially if I'm making the effort. That's really challenging, not being seen.
1: Thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig-Johnson for additional audio tweaking and our lovely theme music. If you feel like this episode sparked some new ideas, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. I even put a link right in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening, and remember to take your time.